The chair of this session is Ambassador James LaRocco, who is the director of the Center for Near East and South Asia Strategic Studies. As a career diplomat with 35 years in service, former U.S. Ambassador to Kuwait, but thoroughly familiar as well with Asia and the Eastern Mediterranean and the dynamics of foreign policy making here in the nation's capital. Ambassador LaRocco. Thank you very much, uh, John, and uh, thank you for inviting me to be here today. It's a real privilege uh, to be with truly one of the greatest figures of uh, our time over the last, I won't mention how many years, but it's been a long time, John. Um, our topic is future of defense cooperation, and uh, delighted to have as panelists here today uh, two very distinguished speakers. Uh, you have the bios available uh, in your book, complete bios, so I won't get into that. Uh, the first speaker will be Dr. Moynihan, who will talk about defense cooperation implications following the death of Osama bin Laden and Anwar al-Awlaki. General Ford will speak about defense cooperation implications following what uh, some refer to as the Arab Spring, I like to call the Middle East in transition. Um, but at a recent seminar I was conducting in one of the Gulf countries, when I said that, uh, one of the people in the audience stood up and said, we here like the term Arab Spring, because in the Gulf, the Arab Spring is followed by a very long, hot, miserable summer. So, to us, it's quite apt. Maybe not to you. Uh, and he'll be focusing particularly on uh, Egypt and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. After that, we will have some comments by uh, Colonel Dave DeRoche, uh, who is currently in a position as the director for, at, at uh, OSD Policy for the uh, Arabian Peninsula, and is coming on board at NISA, which uh, we're very proud of. And then Professor Bob Sharp, uh, uh, who has uh, been a professor at uh, NISA for over a year now, before at NDU. Dave will comment particularly on the U.S. government approach, and uh, Professor Sharp will talk about leader-centric leader approaches. I would like to kick off this discussion with some comments based on my travels this year. Uh, as someone who has been involved in the region for almost 40 years now, I did not want to miss anything this year. Uh, fortunately, my wife and I bought a new house in Old Town, so she was happy to have me away while she was redecorating unilaterally, which is the best way to keep a 33-year marriage going. Um, <laughs> I've traveled over 150,000 miles this year uh, in the region, and I have about another 50,000 before the end of this year. Uh, I truly wanted to get a feel for what's happening. And I'd like to make a few general comments that uh, uh, do not really touch on what the other two speakers will be saying, but I think they're important. First is the role of the United States. If anything, what I hear over and over again, either with a finger 
shaking at my face, or a plea is that the United States not self-impose isolation on itself from the region, that the United States not withdraw. There is a deep, deep concern that we are doing so, and that we believe that our American people and our government believe that this is the right approach, that we should save money and address our deficit by withdrawing from the region. Continually, what I hear is that we are the indispensable power in the region, whether it is the release of a hostage, the overthrow of a dictator, or the launching of new economic programs. Our role is considered essential, even if, and I hate this term, we leave from behind. Uh, this is a fear in countries as they see a changing dynamic. And I'd like to focus on a couple that were touched on as well by uh, Ambassador Freeman. That is Iran. Iran is more active now in the view of the people in the region, as they tell me. And before I go any further, I must tell you that I am liberated. I am a full-time member of the Senior Executive Service of the Department of Defense. Even so, I'm allowed to speak freely. Uh, so I do not, when I speak, represent the views of the Department of Defense or the U.S. government, which allows me to, in fact, have very serious, frank discussions with you in street throughout the region. Um, Iran is a deep, deep concern. It's considered that their actions, not just their words, are truly threatening in a way that they have not threatened since the Iranian Revolution. If you take a look, and again, I want to relate this directly to the topic, at U.S. defense sales, particularly U.S. official defense sales, up until a few years ago, they continued to be dominated by sales from NATO allies and some certain countries in East Asia. Not anymore. In recent years, the overwhelming preponderance of our official sales are to the Middle East, to the Gulf states, and elsewhere in the region. This is a fact. And if you look at the charts, the divergence is growing even more. I would like to think that's because we're great friends, but it's not. It's because of this primarily fear of states in the region looking to their east. Whether it is the fear of Iran, a fear of China, fear of India. Let's not fool ourselves. People in the region are looking much more to the east these days than they are to the west. But they also look at the United States as still being the only country in the world that can project hard power anywhere, anyplace, anytime. And they do believe that Having a strong defense cooperation relationship with them is their best safeguard for their future. And that's reflected in arms sales and defense cooperation and cooperation in the area of counterterrorism. So I wanted to throw that out, and a lot of this is, again, fear of Iran to a great extent. And the inability, as they see, of the United States to address that. So ironically, 
this growth of Iranian influence and the inability of the U.S. to deal with is fostering greater arms sales. I'll leave it at that. But uh, it's something that uh, I see an uh, in, in increasing uh, role for the United States in terms of defense cooperation. Perhaps someone may argue because of our blunders. Well, whatever it is, I see that increasing. I also believe that this American drawdown, particularly from Iraq, is changing everything rather dramatically. And there is this deep concern about our withdrawal and a replacement of that with a surrogate relationship through defense cooperation. If we're not going to do it for them, they're going to do it themselves. This is part, I believe, of countries stepping up. What I see now are four pillars in the region. And I'm trying to avoid looking too far east, but I can tell you I myself am spending an enormous amount of time traveling back and forth to Pakistan, which I consider to be the biggest single threat that to our interests, the United States, in the future. It is truly a very alarming situation there, and one that we need to deal with, and we are trying. But I see four pillars. They are Turkey, Israel, whether they like it or not, they are. People judge their actions on the basis of what Israel does or doesn't do. Saudi Arabia, which I believe could have played a role over the years, but self-selected their own, in many respects, isolation no longer. Saudi Arabia is a very key, active strategic pillar in the region, and Iran. And if you take a look at those four, I think you have a good understanding of where we may be going. I share the concern that Ambassador uh, Friedman mentioned about uh, Israel and its isolation. I don't think that's good for them, and it's good for us, or good for anyone. Uh, if you take a look at the last 40, 50 years of Israel's history, they did engage very actively in soft power. And those of us who have been around a long time remember Israel's strategic periphery approach in looking to try to get countries on the edges of the Arab world to uh, work very closely with them. That included Turkey, included Iran, included Morocco, included India, including a number of countries. And then their approach, in terms of soft power, with their neighbors was peace. And they were able to achieve that. Uh, the old saying that I learned when I was a young Foreign Service officer headed to Saudi Arabia in 1975 is there is no war without Egypt, no peace without Syria. They got Egypt out of the equation. From a soft and a hard power point of view, that was a brilliant achievement, even if we needed Jimmy Carter to shove this down in throats. I, I don't think so. I, I think his role was indispensable, but they knew that this was vital. No peace without Syria, that's where we've been all these years. But peace with Jordan has helped them on the periphery as well. And I do believe that as we look at the region, I see dangerous trends. Because I do believe that there is a confluence of interests between Turkey, Israel, and Saudi Arabia, particularly in facing the threats to the east. But this will never come about without resolution of wider issues, including the Arab-Israeli issues. All of this, though, whether we're talking about Israel or Saudi Arabia or Turkey, 
I believe we are going to see greater defense cooperation with those three pillars. Iran, I wish I had a solution there. Uh, I don't. But I just want to make one final point here is when our leaders, American leaders, say that our policy is that Iran will not acquire a nuclear weapon, I take that seriously. Many people don't. I think you do so, people who do so, particularly our foreign friends, do so at their own peril, judging their policies. So, let me just throw that out. I hope I've been provocative in my own way. That's what we try to do at NISA. And um, I will now turn uh, first to uh, Dr. Moynihan uh, for his presentation. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Ambassador Larocco. And uh, goodness, greetings again from the Board of Directors. Uh, we're delighted today to, on this panel, be sharing close cooperation with the NISA Center for Strategic Studies. Uh, the, the National Council that engages in outreach programs in a number of directions. Uh, this, uh, this alliance and this partnership on, on issues of defense cooperation and others can only be a good thing for both organizations, and, and we're pleased to see it. Uh, next, a disclaimer. My comments are my own. Uh, I am an employee of Northrop Grumman, and uh, this is, these comments have not been cleared with the company, uh, so they, they are my own and shouldn't be attributed to, uh, to the corporation. That said, they're informed. Uh, I've been engaged in defense cooperation activities in the region uh, for over 30 years, and uh, I think that uh, my, my experiences and my efforts uh, can, can inform my, my offerings today. Uh, I'm certainly delighted to, uh, uh, to be on a panel with my colleague of many years, General Hoare. Uh, some, uh, some many years ago, we would often meet in the gymnasium at McDill Air Force Base early in the morning. And, uh, and we've met in several parts of the world since then. Sir, it's an honor to be with you. Thank you. Um, I, uh, if, I, if I can get to, to the five points I'd like to discuss with you, the first is a bit definitional. Uh, my topic was defense cooperation. I'd like to more broadly address security cooperation, including certainly military, but also including paramilitary, constabulary, uh, and intelligence cooperation uh, because the efforts in the region of the United States and for that matter of the residents of the region and others who choose to join the United States or others to, uh, to engage in hostilities in the region are not traditional military maneuvers. They certainly don't qualify as, uh, as the offensive or the defensive or something that's easily explained by principles of war. Um, it's far more complex and even terms like irregular warfare and terrorism really don't do it justice. Uh, so we'll talk about security cooperation in a more general sense. And uh, uh, we'll certainly include joint training exercises, uh, access and basing, which is addressed briefly by Ambassador Freeman, uh, operational coordination. And for those of you that have ever been to MacDill Air Force Base, uh, if you haven't, you should see the trailer park there the trailer park which surrounds the headquarters uh, uh, displaying the flag of virtually every nation in the CENTCOM AOR. 
where operational coordination occurs on a, on a daily basis there and to my knowledge is unmatched at any other regional combatant command. Uh, intelligence cooperation. Intelligence cooperation is ongoing, extensive, uh, helpful to all concerned, and even occurs with, uh, uh, with between countries that are not necessarily uh, allied or friendly or coalition partners in other senses. Shall I suggest it even occurs between the United States and countries that our diplomats sometimes label state sponsors of terror. Uh, these, are, these are valuable connections for all concerned, and it helps us uh, in ways that uh, probably can't be discussed in depth today. Uh, technology transfer in terms of uh, uh, foreign military sales and other efforts that, as an industrial member, I've been involved in with many, for many years are also important parts of security cooperation. Um, and indeed, the, the work of our friends at the, at the NISA Center is probably more important than the soft power notion of, uh, of defense and security cooperation and many other things that, uh, that could be mentioned. And now we even find some, uh, uh, some constabulary cooperation. A recently announced center in Abu Dhabi uh, to address uh, certain, uh, let's call them criminal justice aspects of counterterrorism, which will be jointly chaired by the Emiratis, uh, the United States, and the Turks. So if it's been your thought, as it was mine, the Turkish interests in the region were limited to the Levant, and, uh, and, and limited uh, in way areas not in the Gulf, we can no longer be quite so certain of that since their presence in Abu Dhabi is announced and uh, presumably will be prominent in, uh, in the counter-terror role. Um, I would say that there is uh, nothing specifically contained within the Arab revolutions, the Arab awakening, the Arab spring, summer, autumn, uh, the renewed sense, or perhaps in many cases the new sense, of individuality, of citizenry, of government participation on the part of the Arab people that should in fact diminish uh, defense and security cooperation. Defense and security estates certainly will respond in ways they have not before uh, to the, the attitudes, the opinions, the preferences of their citizens. But we, we should be honest, that's, that will probably take a while. We noticed that in the case of Egypt, in the military members of the TNC, the prominent military members, have sort of announced that they plan to really stay in power for the next 12 to 18 months, whether or not elections uh, produce a civilian government during that time. And we also note that the Egyptian military is now toying with the notion of, uh, of a role of guardians of the state, guardians uh, of the people, in the ways that the Turks have embraced since the days of Ataturk. Uh, we now find the Egyptian military seeking and perhaps asserting that same role. Uh, let me turn to my second definitional point. The United States has... Uh, has chosen to pursue certain individuals uh, by military, extra-military, paramilitary, constabulary military means for a long time. They would include Geronimo, Pancho Villa, Manuel Noriega, 
Saddam Hussein, uh, many, many others. In fact, it's fair to say uh, Dead or Alive ROE uh, is, is not so much a new notion as it is a new notion to overtly proclaim it, uh, which is uh, a very questionable uh, practice, frankly. Um, my last assignment as a military officer was as a staff principal in the United States Special Operations Command. And I can assure you that there have been many other covert and clandestine activities which essentially pursued for good reasons uh, dead or alive ROE that are not discussed anywhere, that have not been discussed anywhere, and that will not be discussed anywhere. Uh, I'll, I'll return to that point in, uh, in my closing comment, other than to mention at this time for you to think about it's probably a good policy. And um, during the time of, uh, of enormous public discourse about uh, the, uh, the, the loss through death of Osama bin Laden, Imam Osama, uh, Admiral Mullen's comments on the time was, let's stop talking about this. Does anybody remember that? Yet no one would. So let's, uh, let's leave that for a moment, and, and, uh, and I'll move on to my second point. Uh, the use of lethal force by the United States in combination with friends or, or unilaterally, uh, with or without host nation coordination, uh, with or without declaration of war in the vicinity, has been controversial in the United States and the world. Uh, mass murder, however, is certainly a criminal activity. Uh, yet it's not only criminal. Jurisdiction, size, and scope are very definitely issues. Uh, I am persuaded that constabulary action, offensive constabulary action, to deal with such threats and such practices to bring justice to such individuals is both necessary and appropriate. Criminal justice solutions are not available or inadequate uh, beyond our shores. In that sense, we should think that some of the assets, uh, whether they're at uh, uh, Dam Neck, Virginia, or, uh, or Fort Bragg, or others, are truly just the largest, uh, the most, the most well-funded, and the most technically proficient SWAT team in the world. Um, because their actions are not, in a sense, uh, the military offensive. They are, in fact, uh, extrajudicial offensive constabulary actions, as may be taken by a SWAT team in certain situations. I'm not sure that JSOC would be flattered to hear someone refer to them as a SWAT team, but uh, that is, in, in effect, the, the nature of many of their actions, and that was the nature of their actions in Pakistan uh, when, uh, when Sheikh Osama lost his life. Um, and we should know that the lawyers are involved. Now, I'd, uh, I, would not be, I would not be happy to try to explain to uh, an exclusive Arab audience why, the, why there was a less demanding standard for the use of lethal force uh, extraterritorially than there is within the United States, that somehow citizenship is important to the lawyers. It doesn't strike me as intuitive that it would be. But, uh, but it is. So, yes, there's a less demanding standard, but the lawyers are involved. Each target is individually approved by name through a process that uh, 
were you familiar with it, you would find to be painstaking. Uh, there is indeed congressional uh, uh, coordination that occurs, admittedly not with all members of both houses, but nonetheless uh, the United States does act as a government and it does act with friends in this sense. Uh, and so I, I would argue with you that uh, as targets of constabulary lethal action, um, uh, Sheikh Osama and Sheikh Anwar were worthy targets. Uh, and there are no indications to, to my viewing that targeting of these individuals would, should, or could automatically diminish security cooperation. In fact, in the case of the attack, the, by the way, very different methodologies uh, were involved in, in, in the two uh, terminations. And in the case of the, uh, uh, of the, of the Pakistani uh, attack against, uh, uh, against Sheikh Osama, Imam Osama, those tactics, techniques, and procedures are shared by the United States with many Arab governments. Many times the, uh, uh, the, the work through JSETs and other training exercises, the, uh, the, the United States actively participates with Arab friends in the, in the training of such techniques and the execution of techniques as a team and capabilities exist within many Arab countries to do precisely uh, the same sorts of actions. That's not the case with drones. So as we, uh, as we turn to my next point, we have to talk a little bit about what the, uh, the military, or at least the Air Force, hates to hear people refer to as drones. Uh, the Air Force calls them RPVs, remotely piloted vehicles, of course, or sometimes other terms. As a matter of fact, they will tell you their biggest limit in operational utility is the lack of sufficient number of pilots for remotely piloted vehicles. Um, those pilots may be in Nevada or at some other location, but, uh, but to suggest that, uh, that these are simply autonomous actions is not true. Nonetheless, we should acknowledge that, uh, as was acknowledged already today a couple of times, that, uh, that RPV attacks are particularly, uh, shall we say, offensive to certain uh, audiences. There is a sense that they are ultimately and, uh, indiscriminate in nature. I should mention that one of the individuals who held that view was General Stanley McChrystal who at the time of his command in Afghanistan uh, restricted significantly and in fact eliminated for a time uh, any attacks from, uh, from manned or unmanned uh, air vehicles, any, anything that the Air Force sometimes labels death from above uh, because General McChrystal was of the view that the collateral damage issues associated with it were simply impossible to accept in combination with a counterinsurgency strategy. Uh, I checked with him recently. By the way, his successor there, General Petraeus, reversed much of that. I talked with John McChrystal recently, and he acknowledged, one, that RPV attacks are relatively new technology, uh, that the area was unmanned in terms of pilot and sensor, or not, not well manned in terms of pilots and sensor operators, that training has been a challenge for those engaged in this, and that things have improved. As a matter of fact, to suggest that RPV attacks automatically uh, 
involve unacceptable collateral damage may well be 2008 or 2009 news, not 2011 news. And, uh, and indeed, in the more recent attacks in, uh, in Yemen, we find that, uh, uh, that they were highly accurate and they were highly well placed, and the intelligence system which supports them worked well. Uh, that said, only the foolish still talk about surgical airstrikes or uh, uh, was the other term that, uh, uh, that we sometimes used, uh, uh, precision targeting. Uh, uh, I'm a career aviator and I try not to use such terms because they don't exist. Collateral damage will, will never be zero, but it may have well moved in the case of RPV attacks into the acceptable realm. Ted uh, said, you know, in the technology community, in which I spend much of my time, there's now some dis discussion about legal, lethal autonomy. Simply, uh, RPV attacks without those operators in Nevada and, and without that confirming process, suggesting that technology itself can provide such a legitimate target identification that further control is unnecessary well, that brings me to what I refer to as the mantra of Dubai, that anything worth doing is worth overdoing. Um, and I, uh, I don't think we'll, we'll ever be there, and I think the safeguards that are in place uh, will, will not be abandoned soon in favor of, of technology. Yet I also know that the burden of target identification is crucial and in my role in, uh, in the defense industries, I can assure you there is no higher priority for defense industries, uh, my company and many others, than improving target ID technology. It has helped, by the way, that assets have, uh, have moved from Iraq to other AORs as the, as the numbers in Iraq have diminished. Uh, Cross-queuing is increasingly available. Uh, host nation human resources are also more available. Technology has improved. Training has improved. It's a better system now than it was even six months ago or certainly several years ago, but it can never be perfect. Uh, and we should note that uh, even as we talk about not uh, – not doing well in Iraq and Afghanistan, not meeting our goals. We should note that the efforts, including those that I've discussed today, has reduced the age uh, of our enemies by a decade. Um, in in Al-Qaeda and in other places, our, our opponent leadership that used to be in the mid-30s is now in their mid-20s. That's maybe not an answer, but it's not a bad beginning either, and it's not trivial that our forces have managed to bring that about. Let me finish by mentioning that the controversy associated with, uh, uh, with lethal uh, actions, even if justified by me as just offensive constabulary actions by a super SWAT team, will remain uh, controversial, will remain critical. And those who find the, the efforts of the United States and her friends objectionable will always suggest that those are indiscriminate. Uh, our opponents will hide in the middle of cities. Uh, they will suggest that uh, even, even in the event that, uh, of any noncombatant loss of life, 
that this was somehow due to a callousness or, or a lack of concern by the process uh, uh, associated with the release of weapons. And we seem to be playing into their hands by our incredibly ineffective strategic communications plan. And this will be my last point. I mentioned it early on that we have a, a domestic imperative uh, to somehow crow uh, about these actions when they're taken, to somehow give press conferences, to somehow give video, to even engage in a discussion of giving still photographs, which fortunately we chose not to do. Uh, for myself, with the, uh, with the death of Sheikh Osama, if I'd been in the decision tree, I would have suggested a simple announcement congratulating the government of Pakistan on a job well done, um, leaving any participation by the United States completely unacknowledged, completely undisclosed. I don't know why uh, our domestic political impulse requires us to, uh, to engage in this. But we should note that, it, as has been noted already today, that following the Arab Awakening, that uh, foreign leaders, foreign militaries will also be responding to domestic audiences. And why do you think, uh, why would you think, that their imperatives for defense and security cooperation would not be adversely affected by our domestic political imperatives? Uh, the last point I'll leave with is strategic communications in a real term. You know, we used to, uh, at meetings like this, uh, suggest that it was the demise of USIA which caused all of our problems. Uh, well, I'm certain it didn't help. Nonetheless, the strategic communications effort of the past 10 years to persuade the Arab publics that we indeed are a loyal friend, that we know what we're about, that our interests are perhaps more closely aligned with their interests than they realize, have been stunningly ineffective, and we've spent a lot of money. We've created TV stations, we've created radio stations, we've created newspapers, we've given interviews. We, at one point, were including uh, single-channel radios and leaflets and something like 60 percent of the munitions we dropped from our conventional forces. And yet, we seem to be tone-deaf. Uh, what is it about the United States, the, the, the center of entertainment in the world, the center of communications technology in the world, that we are so completely inept uh, in, in spreading our message in a way that's acceptable to Arab public audiences? Because it would be foolish on our part, it is foolish on our part, to think that, uh, I guess our approval rating among Arab audiences uh, increased from single digits to almost 30 percent at the time of the President's Cairo speech. But as measured by, uh, by Telhami and Zogby, and indeed as has already been mentioned, as measured by Abu Dhabi Gallup, we're back now in the teens headed again to single digits in terms of Arab approval ratings of our actions, of our motives, of our interests. How can, how can we think that a more, in a more democratic Arab world, and one in which the views of citizens will more accurately reflect audio, uh, Arab uh, policies in the future, that our relationships in, in defense and security would survive uh, such, a, such a poor rating. I don't know. I don't believe it's the priority that it needs to be. I think this aspect of soft power has uh, um, been characterized by a display of incompetence uh, on the part of uh, on the part of our government that we should find frightening, and we certainly should find ineffective. 
and I realize I'm not answering the how question when I make such an assertion. But uh, thank you for uh, putting up with me. I hope it uh, was not viewed as, as either a whine or a rant, but maybe just somewhere in the middle. Thanks so much. <laughs> My subject this morning of the implications uh, for uh, defense cooperation in view of the Arab Spring. Uh, bearing in mind uh, what my friend Chaz Freeman had to say earlier as a background, uh, you can see that there are a lot of challenges out there. Day to day, the American people, I think, have been very positive about the potential for change and change for the better within the Arab world. Uh, the truth of the matter is, is that we don't know where this is going. I'm not sure that it's as, quite as serious as Chaz suggested earlier today, but there are a great many uncertainties. And I think what we should think about is uh, be careful what you wish for, because democracy in this context may not be exactly what we want. Part of the difficulty that we have, of course, is we're talking about very diverse countries within the Arab community. Um, Tunisia, which has just had a, uh, an election, which we believe thus far at least has been successful, is a very different country from Saudi Arabia, where elections as we know them are still something that we hope will, will take place in the future. And so uh, this disparity makes it hard to, to generalize about uh, what we can expect to see in, in, the, in the future. Uh, what kind of democracy will we see as, as these elections go forward? And, and what will be the influence of Islam, and most especially uh, the influence of Islam as it relates to the bilateral relationship with the United States, and because uh, these relationships are, in fact, what, what allow us to have defense cooperation. That issue will be at stake, I think, as we go forward and, and we looked at, at these things. I, I think that the possibility of change for foreign policy, in many ways, um, presaged by the relationship of the Arab countries with Israel and the difficulties that we have seen, are, are part of all of this. Uh, it tried to show uh, some difference. I've chosen to speak about uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Uh, first of all, because they are the two most influential countries in the Arab community. And, and secondly, uh, their backgrounds are quite diverse. Uh, virtually everybody in, in, the, in the Middle East and South Asia has had a crack at running uh, Egypt, starting with the Greeks and then the Romans and the Ottomans, the French and the, and the Brits and so forth. And so uh, they are, their experience, which is one of great pride in 7,000 years of, of civilization, a civilization that exists and prospered when our ancestors were largely living in caves in northern Europe. Uh, and and they, they are very proud of their country, and justifiably so. And yet, because of this, uh, this colonial experience, uh, they've had very difficult times, in my judgment. But since the Camp David Accords, um, they have been uh, moving forward uh, as a close ally with the United States. Part of that deal was to provide $1.3 billion a year in foreign military funding, 
um, a very generous program for education for military officers, uh, joint exercises, and of course uh, other things like economic help. But um, of those points, while uh, the foreign military funding has provided for aircraft and tanks and, and material of, of that nature, um, and with, with good results. I think the Army and the Air Force are both very capable, uh, very large, well-equipped, uh, and despite the efforts of, of uh, Israel to make sure that the qualitative advantage militarily for, for Israel to continue uh, is not diminished, uh, they do have a lot of capability. Uh, <clears throat> but I think beyond that, uh, we, we could say that foreign military education for officers has been terribly important. I think it's probably one of the most cost-effective programs that we have within the military because it moves uh, middle grade and senior officers back here to the United States frequently with their families where they live in American communities and go to places like the National War College or uh, the command staff colleges around the country. And in my own experience in the Middle East, I find that these are very fond memories for these people and their introduction to this brand of democracy here in the United States frequently stems from, from that program. Uh, joint exercises have become uh, terribly important in particular to Egypt uh, and uh, the Bright Star exercise that's run every two years in Egypt it began as a simple U.S.-Egyptian exercise and has grown uh, to a very complex arrangement now in which Egypt has taken the lead and invited other countries from the region to participate. And it's one that they look forward to uh, with great enthusiasm from year to year. And so those exercises are, are again important. But it, I want to point out that all of this is possible because of the good uh, political relationship be that exists between the two countries up until now. Where the elections go, uh, we don't know. But before the Arab Spring uh, last uh, January, um, you will recall that Egypt politically was very solidly in the U.S. camp. Mr. Mubarak was very supportive of our uh, issues whether it be with, uh, with Egypt or with uh, Israel or others. Uh, now uh, the General's Council is preparing uh, for an election that will take place next month. Um, a comment about the inhabitants of this General Council, some of whom I've known over 20 years, uh, these are soldiers first, they're not politicians or diplomats. Uh, many of them have had um, longevity in their positions because they keep their head down, do the job well. They're not politically astute. They have not sought uh, publicity. And I, I think uh, speculation on my part, but nonetheless, as, as the Egyptian uh, government evolves, that you will see an increasing interest on in the part of the military to have a greater say as they did in the former regime. And, and that may be somewhat at odds uh, with our hopes for uh, uh, a, a truly democratic society. Uh, but we need to recall that uh, our limitations on our own military uh, were informed uh, by British imperialism and the fact that you needed to have uh, a military that was responsible to political civilian leadership for which there is very little uh, 
experience in, in Egypt. You'll recall that, that every leader since the monarchy was overthrown has been a military man. And so uh, we can see some problems in that regard. But it is this military council that's working very closely with the Muslim Brotherhood to, to, uh, to plan for these elections. And uh, while some of us believe that they're not moving fast enough, I'm, I think that that may be inappropriate at this, for, at this point. But as we look at who's going to be elected, I think it's good to remember that the Muslim Brotherhood during its terrorist pre uh, period uh, was uh, uh, not persecuted, but, but certainly prosecuted. Uh, by the government, but in their efforts to do this, oftentimes uh, innocent young men that uh, grew beards and therefore looked as though they might have been Islamists were picked up and interrogated brutally. And uh, there may still be some, uh, some scores to settle between the government and, and the Brotherhood. Uh, it's important to notice that uh, with respect to Israel, that 53% of Egyptians believe that the peace treaty between Israel and, uh, and Egypt be abrogated. Then if elections were to take place this past month, um, one-third of the members of parliament would be liberal, one-third would be from the Muslim Brotherhood, and one-third would be from the Salafist uh, uh, group. And so uh, that's, a, that's a lineup that would not necessarily be very um, open to U.S. policies in the region. We don't know that. Uh, but it's one of those things that we need to take in consideration. But I think the, the, the final thought of, about Egypt is that there is no other entity in Egypt that has been solidly and consistently more American supporters than the, than the Egyptian military. These are people that know us, know our country, that have traveled here, and are indeed uh, good friends of the United States. And it's been common in the past uh, that when a country that receives uh, foreign military funding it does something that we don't like here in the U.S., that we punish them by reducing or taking away their foreign military funding. Uh, in fact, uh, Senator Kerry just recently said that if Egypt, Egypt didn't shape up, that uh, they uh, might have to lose some of their foreign military funding. I would refer you to the case study of what we did to Pakistan after Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, uh, and our government assisted the Afghans in driving the Soviet Union out of Afghanistan in the late 80s. Um, that that long war had uh, placed tremendous uh, hardships on the Pakistani government, including uh, five million Afghan refugees in the northwest frontier province. We, shortly after that period, uh, invoked the Pressler Amendment, which had to do with uh, Pakistan's nuclear program, took away foreign military funding, took away the schooling, took away uh, training opportunities. Pakistan rightly felt that after their participation in driving the Soviet Union out of Afghanistan, we in the United States abandoned them, and that the resultant was a very difficult time, which included introduction of drugs, destruction of infrastructure, in addition to the, uh, uh, to the refugees. This is in part the reason why we have such a difficult time with Pakistan right now. They don't trust us. They believe, probably correct, 
that uh, after what happens in Afghanistan, we'll abandon them one more time in favor of India. And some of the discussions that have come up about South Asia, of course, bear that out. Let's talk about Saudi Arabia for a minute. While uh, the other countries in the Arab world have experienced uh, uh, colonialism, Saudi Arabia has uh, managed to be among the handful of countries that have never been owned by a foreign power. And so uh, our friend Chaz Freeman frequently talks about uh, the uniqueness of Saudi Arabia and points out that when the Saudi Arabians first turned to the West, they didn't as supplicants, but rather as people looking to hire people from the West to help them with technology. And so it, it has been for me and continues to be an enormously interesting country. And yet it is, of course, uh, uh, quite influential in the, reason, in, in the region. Their support for the United States, despite the fact that they disagree with our policy oftentimes, has been uh, a great help to uh, achieving our goals in the region. Um, King Abdullah himself was opposed to the invasion of Iraq. His reason? Because if we took down Iraq, we were going to make Iran a regional power. Guess what happened? Uh, with respect to Israel, uh, King Abdullah has twice sponsored uh, a uh, motion in the Arab League which has been passed unanimously in both cases to uh, for foster a permanent peace with Israel based on 67 borders, right of return, and uh, I've lost the third item, but you will recall what it is, uh, right of return. I'll get to it. Uh, forgive me. <laughs> uh, those efforts by King Abdullah have, have largely been ignored by the West and by the United States. And so now we have the issue uh, before Saudi Arabia and, and indeed before the world about uh, membership of Palestine in the, the UN. Uh, I am particularly sorry that Prince Turkey won't be here with us today because many of you know he's written an op-ed piece in the Washington Post a couple of months ago about this very issue and the fact that should the United States uh, veto uh, membership of Palestine in the United Nations, it would, to use his words, irreparably damage the bilateral relationship between the two countries. And so we have a lot going on between uh, Saudi Arabia and us. We have a lot dependent on our ability to work together. And this relationship has been steadfast in many ways, but we have consistently disappointed Saudi Arabia in their views of how things ought to be run in, in the Middle East. Notwithstanding that, uh, and at least in part due to the potential threat of Iran to the region, we continue to have very close cooperation. Central Command and the Saudi Arabia work hand in glove on, on projects all the time. Uh, we see Saudi Arabia um, uh, buying more defense equipment, particularly things that, that would assist them in defending their own country, things like uh, fighter aircraft, command control aircraft, armed helicopters, and, and things of this nature. And so all of this defense cooperation be depends really on the political environment. I, I hope that, uh, that Chaz Freeman, who is often the person that tells us what's going to happen next in this part of the world, uh, is, is not as correct as he 
uh, offered us this morning. But the point is that both Egypt and Saudi Arabia are attempting in their own way to work with us. It will take patience on our part. It will take uh, a, the ability to look through the prism of another country at how they deal with their own internal pro uh, issues. But in the long run, both of those countries are very, very important to achieving our political goals in the region. Thank you. Um, greater investment is needed through defence cooperation in leader-centric approaches. In Iraq and Afghanistan, we have shifted approach from enemy-centric, focused on killing or capturing the bad guys, to population-centric approaches, focused on hearts and minds of the people through development. From now on, in all engagements, our defence cooperation needs to include greater emphasis on leader-centric approaches. Now, these approaches achieve outcomes whereby how things are done are changed for the better through leadership to how things should be done. Let me give you an example. NISA's work with the Lebanese Armed Forces, a leader-centric approach. Um, we have developed Lebanese Armed Forces curriculum and their faculty at their staff college to try and generate better critical thinking. We do this in the region at their command and staff college. There has been so much improvement in those students and the faculty that for the first time ever this year, when they visited Washington DC, their students were panelists at a seminar and their faculty co-facilitated discussion groups. IMET is another example of a leader-centric approach. NISA has strong relationships across our region to over 3,000 alumni who we, we, we maintain close contact with. But to support these sorts of leader-centric approaches, we need to transition more funds from kinetic to non-kinetic outputs. Second example. Case study for Yemen, how to help Yemen utilising a balanced enemy population and leader-centric approach. First, the enemy-centric approach targets the bad guys. Kill, capture them, even though they may be succeeded by others. Keep them off balance. The death of bin Laden and others uh, demonstrates the need for an enemy-centric approach to kill or capture those who are irreconcilable, but it must be clinical. Second, we're dealing with ordinary Yemeni people, the great mass of which just want normal peaceful lives. This group needs our help through various forms of material and moral assistance under a population-centric approach. However, they are vulnerable to the bad guys, who need only to kill a few of them to paralyse them. Therefore, Working to retain the hearts and minds of the ordinary Yemeni people by a population-centric approach needs, in parallel, an enemy-centric approach to kill and capture the bad guys. And then thirdly, the Yemeni are vulnerable too to their own leaders, those chosen and those imposed upon them. And then the leaders, therefore, are the third group, 
um, to be supported, and we must adopt a leader-centric approach to develop relationships with the leaders, with the future leaders, to develop their capacity for critical thinking and reduce corruption. And also similar programmes, as I mentioned, that we do with Lebanon. Enemy population and leader-centric approaches are all needed, but the situation will dictate the balance between them. Now, in conclusion, at this time of great change and shifting priorities for defence cooperation, greater investment is needed in leader-centric approaches and, if necessary, at the expense of enemy and population-centric approaches. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I should point out that that was Bob Sharp, and I'm Colonel Dave DeRoche. We switched orders. For those of you who thought that that accent was coming from a colonel in the U.S. Army, it wasn't. Um, <clears throat> which leads me into a disclaimer. When I agreed to accept here, I was the director for the Arabian Peninsula in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and I was going to describe Ambassador LaRocco as we knew him, which is a man of strategic vision, incredible energy, and a not inconsiderable amount of low cunning. Um, in our office, one of my coworkers described him as a fox who drank three cups of coffee and decided to take a bank robbery. <laughs> Since that time, I've shifted to the Near East and South Asia Center, so I'm actually now an employee of Ambassador LaRocco, so I just want the room to acknowledge how handsome he is. Um, <laughs> my remarks uh, are my own and do not reflect the United States government or the Department of Defense or the United States Army. I'm going to speak about the challenges of implementing security assistance, particularly foreign military sales, and I'm going to do it in three parts. Philosophical, a philosophical argument, a legislative argument, and a bureaucratic argument. The bottom line is it, it is a mistake to assume that policy results coming from the U.S. government reflect U.S. government aims, desires, or even interests. Ambassador Friedman noted that earlier on. In no area, however, is this more true than in security assistance, particularly in foreign sales of weaponry. Our system is challenged to ramp up and accelerate programs, in particular when there's a change in regime, as we've seen in the Arab Spring. Let me give you first the philosophical argument for that. The bottom line here is that the United States government is not designed for efficiency. Rather, it is designed to ensure that injustices or tyranny do not ensue. The separation of powers between the branches of government, and here between the legislature, the Congress, and the executive, are preserved even if our policy goals suffer. Efficiency and efficacy are secondary considerations. They're secondary considerations. The, the balance of power is preserved. Uh, as James Madison noted in Federalist 48, it will not be denied that power is of an encroaching nature and that it ought to be effectively restrained from passing the limits assigned to it. The problem is the different branches of government differ as to what that limit is. This is accelerated by an innate American distaste to foreign involvement, as typified by General Washington or President Washington's farewell address, and to military, large-scale military involvement overseas, as typified by General Eisenhower's farewell address. Now on to the legislative argument. The governing legislation for the United States government to, do, to conduct security cooperation overseas is the Arms Export and Control Act. It is not an Arms Export Promotion Act. The entire governing body of law is proscriptive, not enabling. That is, our laws tell the executive what it may not do. They don't tell him what he can do. So the entire legislative history that governs us 
is aimed at restricting arms sales rather than promoting it. That's in contrast to a number of our competitors and allies. It's a Cold War system designed to develop influence, i.e., to curry favor over a sustained period of years, not to build a tactical or operational capacity, which is what our allies want, say, if you're a Gulf country facing a resurgent Iran. There have been no legislative changes to the arms export process post 9-11. The world has changed. Our laws remain old. All sales must go through informal consultations, then a formal notification to Congress. This was actually started when Hubert Humphrey was the Senate Majority Leader. Unfortunately, what informal consultations means in practice is the possibility of endless pigeonholing. A member of Congress, or more likely an influential staffer to a member of Congress, decides that he has a problem with a proposed sale, and he says, we need more consultation. The net result is all action is stopped for an indeterminate period of time. And finally, the foreign military sales system must be self-funded. That is, the U.S. government infrastructure that administers foreign military sales does not receive taxpayer dollars. So the United States government is placed at a competitive, ed, or a competitive disadvantage, particularly compared with some other countries where the role of government is seen as promoting, even funding, promotion activities for weapons sales. Let me move on to my third point, which is the bureaucratic one. Bureaucratically, the way the United States government is set up is that organizations which regulate weapons transfers are separate from organizations which oversee security assistance. So you have regulators and then you have implementers. They are separate organizations and they are set up in tension. This natural tension and the requirement for review of considerations such as technology transfer requirements and human rights vetting for training invariably delays U.S. government efforts to provide security assistance. I should also note here that in all my time of, of conducting, implementing, or describing security assistance, I have never seen a discussion yet where the people responsible for a weapons sale have spoken to the importance of, you know, of saying, we've got to do this sale because it employs 14,000 people in the greater St. Louis area. I have never seen that in the U.S. government, and I've been doing this for, well, about 11 years. Contrast that with um, when I was in graduate school in the United Kingdom. Whenever a, a weapon sale was announced, if you were listening to it on the radio, the second line was always, this sale will generate or sustain 6,000 jobs in Glamorgan or the Welsh countryside. The United States government, there is no, there, there is no bureaucratic linkage between those organizations, so it just doesn't matter. So in conclusion... The big question is, why does anybody ever buy U.S. weaponry? And the answer is, our expertise and our hardware is the best in the world. Indeed, it would have to be for people to go through the process. Our system to provide it to our partners, on the other hand, is based upon a legislative framework designed to slow down weapons transfers, enhanced by a long-standing American philosophical objection to such activities. Advancing U.S. partner and security interests thus requires an extremely high degree of patience, cooperation, and planning. Those are all three commodities which are almost always in short supply, but particularly in this, in this day and age. And so the ongoing process of uh, reform and innovation is going to be one which past experience shows the United States government will lag behind the events on the ground. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. Uh, showing how much I travel, I didn't even realize that he was working for.
something which I must confess. I love when I hear Dave Roche talk about James Madison in American history. Now, as good as you are as active listeners, I noticed he never once used the word about, which he pronounces about, because he's Canadian, originally. So I like it when Canadians talk about American founding fathers. That makes me feel good. Uh, we're delighted to have him on board. Um, I must confess that the way we do things at NISA, I've now been there for two years, is that uh, we don't have lecturers and we don't have students. We have presenters and participants. So I feel a little constrained here because I've been told that we have, that we have written questions and not something from you because I would like to think of you as participants and not simply great active listeners, which I know that you are. Uh, but I, if we have time, hopefully we can move into that. But I'd like to present a few questions to uh, my colleagues here uh, that have been given to me. And let me start with Dr. Moynihan. Um, and I'll do two questions, uh, and uh, you can take these however you wish. The first has to do with your presentation and targeting, uh, and particularly the use of uh, what I was called UAVs, but I guess they're now called RPVs. But is this, or I would say, say drones? Uh, is this the way of the future? And uh, is this going to be something increasingly competitive uh, in terms of sales to this region and elsewhere? Um, and what is it going to be used for? Is it going to be used the way we increasingly use as, as an active weapon as opposed to strictly surveillance? And then the second question is, how do you see the uh, collective defense organizations of the region, at least uh, like the GCC, Arably, neither of which until recently were particularly active other than as bodies to talk. But now we've seen with the Arab League response of Libya and the GCC with Bahrain and elsewhere and Yemen. Do you see these collective defense organizations becoming more important and ones that we need to deal with more? Well, thank you, sir. The, the issue of RPVs or UAVs or the dreaded drones uh, continues. Uh, there are some who believe that there's really no philosophical difference or technological difference between weapons fired from a, an RPV and there are uh, cruise missiles fired from a submarine. Both are guided through launch and through a series of systems or surveillance systems after that drops the target. Uh, but in any case, whether or not whichever side of the, that argument you would find persuasive, there is no question that the uh, that the RPV business is strong. Uh, the most recent weapons firings that have occurred in, uh, in Afghanistan and Yemen and uh, for other reasons have not occurred in Somalia, although some would like them to have occurred are the, the Predator Reaper series uh, and uh, based upon defense guidance of some years ago the, uh, uh, if you're uh, don't, don't consider this insider stock advice for General Atomics Corporation in San Diego but uh, the, uh, the, the business looks robust for the, for the foreseeable future uh, 
countries in the region, and I'm looking at some in front of me that managed to complete contracts uh, for both predators and, and reapers, although the Export Control Act, which has been mentioned by colleagues, so far have restricted that to surveillance models rather than uh, those that uh, are capable of firing the so-called Hellfire missile. Uh, that will also change. Uh, there is no doubt that, uh, that for sure, uh, the United States and its friends are reluctant to again engage in, uh, in a regular warfare on the ground, sustaining the enormous numbers of casualties to low-tech weapons, such as IEDs, that occurs in such environments. So the idea of raising uh, the battle level to, uh, to an RPD platform, uh, becoming more air power centric in our need for our decision to employ force abroad uh, is definitely there. Uh, boots on the ground is the term of, uh, of previous years. I don't think we're going to see such a demand for that in the future. And I do believe that the export uh, of uh, Predator and your products will continue. It certainly is a robust business within United States military. Uh, turning to uh, the defense cooperation for uh, within groupings such as the GCC and the Arab League, uh, we should note that the GCC has engaged in something referred to as Peninsula Shield for a long time, and many of us have been to Hoffman and, and, and others, I'm, I'm certain General Ford has and is aware of that. Uh, it's my understanding that the ground component of Peninsula Shield is essentially defunct, that the battalions and brigades have returned to their home country. Uh, that may not be current information. Uh, I really haven't discussed it for a couple of years with colleagues over there. But the other aspects of Peninsula Shield, such as an integrated air defense after two decades of discussions, is, is now a reality. Um, and, uh, and certain naval cooperation, to be honest, led by the Fifth Fleet and led technologically by the networking of the Fifth Fleet is very much in evidence in the region. And it is probably the best example of the, uh, of the GCC countries operating together, uh, <coughs> at least until Bahrain, at least until they combined uh, forces uh, on behalf of the traditional government in Bahrain most recently. With respect to the Arab League pronouncement on Libya, uh, I was actually talking with, uh, with Dr. John Duke and others about that even last evening. It's not the first decision on the part of the Arab League to, uh, uh, to authorize or enable uh, coalition participation in Arab defense. That occurred with the Kuwaiti invasion of Iraq. Uh, and I understand that indeed the, the, uh, the way proclamation from the Arab League encouraging numerous Arab governments, uh, almost every Arab government, to come to Saudi Arabia for the, uh, uh, to participate in the Desert Shield and the Storm Coalition uh, was also enabled by the Arab League. Can we expect more of that? Certainly. Can we expect Turkey's role to increase as others have come in? Absolutely. Uh, and as it now that Iraq is truly defanged by, uh, by years of conflict and still fought the civil strife, Turkey is de facto becoming the alternative Thank you. Um, the next cluster of questions is for General Gore. I think they follow very, uh, very well from the, the previous ones. 
Uh, as you look at the region and in view of the impending withdrawal from Iraq and, in fact, from Afghanistan, uh, the drawdown in Afghanistan, do you believe that U.S. assets as we move forward in the region are adequate uh, to deal with the strategic threats that we and our allies face? Second question here is, again, very much like this. Uh, how can the United States and continue to maintain large enough forces to deter an Iran attempt to close the Strait of Hormuz, which is a waterway for 85% of the world's energy. Given, this is a long question, given, I forget what the beginning is at the end, but given the domestic <laughs> pressures at home to cut spending, obviously it's, it's that whole question of isolation, of defense spending cuts. How do we maintain uh, our interests and able to deal with those, uh, including strategic threats. Yes, I think, uh, first of all, with respect to Iraq, I, I think that the, uh, the difficulty now is that the force that was uh, proposed to remain in Iraq uh, has not been able to, to receive uh, the, the kind of diplomatic uh, cover that they need uh, so that they wouldn't be subjected uh, uh, to Iraqi courts. And, and this, is, uh, this is the way we have done business everywhere. We, we don't put military guys on the ground if, if there is not some provision to make sure that they can uh, not be tried in, in that country. Um, but I think the larger issue is what happens at some given point in the future if all U.S. forces are gone and uh, we see uh, some sort of an internal insurrection. I think the chances that uh, U.S. forces would be reintroduced in order to quell this kind of behavior are slim and none. Uh, I, I think that the, the mistake of going to Iraq is so well realized now, although infrequently spoke about, uh, spoken about in this town, uh, that putting troops back in there again, I think, would, would be unlikely in, in my judgment. Afghanistan um, provides a, a far more complex issue. Uh, my judgment has always been that the center of gravity, the area in which we must concentrate if we're going to be successful in Afghanistan, is Pakistan. That's not a popular view around this town. Uh, when last November the president publicly said uh, that uh, he was going to foster uh, a permanent seat in the UN Security Council for India, I think that probably closed the door <clears throat> for the last time. Uh, first of all, everybody knows that Germany and, and Japan are in line ahead of India. But more importantly, it, it showed uh, the willingness of the United States to, to stand with India when Pakistan views India as the existential threat. All things for Pakistan uh, emanate from that relationship. And so Pakistan, understandably, is not putting all its cards on the table. And we're seeing this today, right now, in the discussion of, of these forces that we believe are tied into the, uh, uh, to the intelligence service. Uh, until we, we either, A, broaden the discussion about the solution in, in Afghanistan, which would, of necessity, include India and probably Russia, and Iran, 
or we make some concessions, I don't, I don't think we're going to have uh, uh, an acceptable outcome to us. But the idea of putting more forces back in there again as they come out seems to me to be uh, politically not likely. Uh, with respect to the second question uh, on the, the Strait of Hormuz, uh, the, the current presence of U.S. Navy forces in the Persian Gulf or the Arabian Gulf, if you will, uh, is, is quite substantial. And uh, I'm not sure that it's appropriate for me to say how much, because uh, when I heard the numbers, it was in a discussion that was classified. But the point is, there is enough naval presence today in the Gulf to forestall that possibility. Uh, the, the forcing of the Strait of Hormuz had been a subject at Central Command for over 20 years. We, we understand the dangers. We understand the nature of a campaign to open it back up again. The Saudis understand this problem. Uh, they have made provisions where something in the order of 60 to 70 percent of their oil exports could be sent across to Yanbu on the Red Sea and pumped out of there. Um, so it, it's not quite as grim as it might appear. Uh, for the other countries that, that uh, face onto the Arabian Gulf, the, the problem would be more difficult. It would certainly disrupt international oil prices without question. Uh, but it's, it's an issue that hasn't gone unnoticed, and, and the, the, the forces that would be necessary to prevent that from happening are um, uh, very capable that are in, in the region, and certainly w there would be the possibility of a rapid uh, reinforcement if it were necessary. Uh, thank you very much. I have a question for uh, my newest loyal employee, uh, Colonel DeRoche. Um, how can the U.S. improve foreign military sales process, the foreign military sales process, to its friends and allies in the region? who are increasingly frustrated with our policy making and our procedures. Thank you, Ambassador. Um, this is a this is a long standing problem and, and uh, I suppose there's there's I have an observation and then I and then I have uh, an answer. The observation is that um, uh, there actually has been in the executive branch a long standing effort to reform, improve, streamline FMS cases. And it, it predates 9-11, it predates uh, actually the Bush administration, it was in the Clinton administration, doing things like trying to reconcile uh, incompatible databases. The um, Army used to have a different database from the Air Force, from the Navy that would run cases, and the cases all had to be reconciled. These were legacy databases from the 60s, things of that nature. Um, both the State Bureau of Political Military Affairs, which has responsibility for the program, and the Department of Defense, which implement them, have a number of people who um, have spent a lot of time on this, and there have been improvements. For example, we've seen a reduction in surcharges over the years to administrate it. Uh, Admiral Landay, the current director um, of DSCA, recently um, announced that there would be a reduction in surcharge rates for particularly big ticket spending items. I think, I think the threshold was $9 billion, if it's over $9 billion, which makes it a lot more customer friendly. But at the end of the day, the fundamental problem is that the United States is a country of laws that is run according to laws. Um, and 
the laws that govern this was written, and when it's not run according to the laws, people feel bad about it and there's a reaction to it. Um, the, the legislative framework was, was written in the Cold War for a different, for a different challenge. Uh, and so there will be improvements as we see increased harnessing of automation and reform measures, and honestly, as we see um, more educated customers uh, who realize that things like, um, uh, say, complex avionics systems like Link 16, that you can't just buy Link 16 and plug it into a Mirage plane and then instantly be compatible with the entire United States Air Force. Um, so when we see those those three things happen, I think we'll see greater, greater but ultimately it's, it's going to have to be a legislative solution. Sure. Um, well, the tension that I spoke of uh, was instituted precisely to ensure that questions such as that are, are examined. And so there have been a number of, um, you know, going back to the AWACS sale in the Reagan administration where, you know, the, the concern was that, you know, are we selling things to a stable regime? Will these be used against us? Can it be reverse engineered? And I suppose the, the case in point is the uh, sale of the F-14 Tomcats to Iran, to the Shah's Iran, and of course those planes were then later used um, by the revolutionary regime. So that, that is one of the reasons for this tension. Um, and we're kind of the most forward-looking uh, uh, country in terms of doing that. Um, I, <laughs> I'm thinking here of the French sale of the Mistral uh, ship to the Soviet or to the Russians. Um, there's a Freudian slip there, uh, but to, to sell for a NATO partner to sell uh, the latest generation naval technology to Russia uh, strikes me as as very odd to say the least. Um, does this does this work against the United States government? It can conceivably, but the whole purpose of this extended uh, review, which puts United States arms exporters at a commercial, a significant commercial disadvantage, and is to ensure that such a thing won't happen. And so the discussion is, is this a stable regime? Will this technology ever be used against us? Now, how do we uh, keep that from being used against us in the longer term? And how do we prevent the United States from going into decline, from losing our military capabilities? Well, the short answer is, um, 
modern military weaponry isn't something that you just buy one of it and it goes forever. It requires maintenance, it requires spares, it requires systems. And uh, absent a continual engagement with the United States, the weaponry itself is going to be suboptimal or ineffective. And uh, really what we're selling, and here's our strong point, I've been kind of gloom and doom, we're not really selling weapons. What we're selling is a relationship. The weapons are secondary. The partnership with the United States, with the United States defense producers, the United States government, and the United States military services, that's where the real value is. And that's what um, ultimately guarantees a, a partner state's security. And so that partnership is, is really where it comes from. If that partnership declines, there'll still be pieces of it, but they'll be no more effective than an Iranian F-14, uh, you know, with a aftermarket gasket uh, on its engine. Thank, thank, I really want to thank all the panelists here for uh, their presentations, and uh, uh, we really do not have time for, for more questions. I would like to close again, going back actually to something that Dr. Moynihan said. I, I think we all recognize what U.S. hard power is all about, uh, and it's still there. And I
uh, even if we can't uh, get agreement on, on all of the issues, but understanding is a, is a very important first step. Thank you very much.